Hello, welcome to GM Crypto with the Coin Fund team. We've spent years as a multi-strategy investment firm focused on blockchain. So join us to unpack complex ecosystem trends and hear from the founders shaping the future of Web3. Please subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter at CoinFund underscore IO. Please note that none of the following should be taken as investment advice. See coinfund.io slash disclaimers for more important information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to GM Crypto. I'm your host, Kelsey, and today we have Chris, the president of our firm and a managing partner, as well as Evan, one of our partners. And we're going to kick it off with Chris, who just got back from D.C. and has some updates from his travels. Hey, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was in D.C. this week. I attended our strategic advisor, Chris Giancarlo. He received an award by the French government for a lot of the work that he was doing in the regulatory space. And I think that's an interesting theme in itself as the EU tries to position itself as a capital for crypto development. But during my visit, I had the opportunity to speak to a number of folks across the Senate and the House and the staffers that are drafting the various bills that will ultimately deliver some clarity around crypto in our country. And I'll tell you, I was really encouraged by the depth of the dialogue and the thoughtfulness that's going into writing these laws. The tone remains very constructive, bipartisan, and also bicameral. And it feels like everyone is aligned. Even when I testified in front of Congress a few weeks back, one thing that's very encouraging from my seat is that I couldn't tell if it was a Democrat or a Republican asking me questions. And I hope that that theme continues because when people are trying to get the right answer and focused on principles-based innovation with responsibility, that's where we want to come out. Now, there's a couple of bills running around right now. I think everyone is very familiar with the Loomis Gillibrand bill, and that was a really great start. And I think it's going to form the basis of a lot of the dialogue on ultimately the law that we're going to see in our country. But there are other bills that are starting to emerge. One in particular is the stabenow Boozman bill. And then stepping back, the question that many of us have is, when are we going to actually see these laws go into effect? Remember the old cartoon, how a bill becomes a law? Well, one thing you need to think about is congressional calendars. And there's a lot to get done and not a lot of time to do it because Congress will go in recess in August. And then you bump into midterm season, and then we do expect a lot of change across midterm elections. And so our best sense is that we're not going to see a law until sometime next year. But the good news is, is that all the discussion and dialogue around what principles need to go into the ultimate law are happening. And I see it, again, as being very constructive. So what are some of the key themes that we're seeing right now? I think the big elephant in the room is what is a security and what is a commodity? And as I've told many people in the past, under U.S. law, everything in the world is a commodity except securities, movie receipts, and onions. And that's just how the law works in this country. And so that's the big elephant in the room. One thing I'm hearing in D.C. is that there's this emerging consensus that Bitcoin and Ethereum indeed are commodities. And I'm hopeful that that will make it into the law. Second, we do have this thing called the Howey test in the United States, which provides precedent that determines what is security and what is not. I don't think you're going to see any changes to the Howey test per se, but there is this question around, okay, beyond Bitcoin and Ethereum, these ancillary assets, these other tokens, how will they be treated? And some of the policies and thought that's going into that is, okay, first off, how decentralized are those tokens? And to the extent that they are decentralized, you could see a world where 
those assets migrate into the commodities bucket, thereby being regulated by the CFTC. On top of that, there's a lot of discussion around governance tokens and even the fact of economics being passed back to token holders and DeFi as an example. I don't think it's clear that just because a token has governance or there are economics passed back to token holders, that that's the end all and be all. And it's definitely a security. It feels like when you look at it through the lens of decentralization, you may have instances where token holders can benefit from economics and governance, and it could still be a commodity. So those are the types of things that are being thought about. The next thing that's being bantered about is, is federal oversight mandatory or is it optional where you can choose the Loomis Gillibrand bill gave folks choice to be regulated by federal government or by the states. My sense is that we'll probably end up in a place where federal oversight is required, frankly, because that helps us with international agreement with other governments and how we create consistent regulation across nations. So that's another topic that's being debated quite regularly. The other thing that's being discussed is around disclosures. Now, for retail participants to get into this market or any other participants to get into this market, they have to be able to understand what they're doing. And some of the things that are being thought about are how do we create a disclosure that's not 72 pages of legalese? How do we create a disclosure that people can know and understand? And that's not easy. And then second, huge, huge theme around climate disclosure. And this is something that people may not realize is as big a deal as it is, but every regulator that I talk to globally, frankly, if you ask them what their priorities are, typically they'll say, my priority is climate change. And so there will be climate disclosures, which is really interesting in the context of the Ethereum merge, but you're going to see climate disclosures. Clearly, there'll be disclosures around risks, the risk that you're taking when you enter into any kind of investment. And then finally, they're talking about disclosures around tokenomics. So how does the token work? What's the burn rate? How do you stand to benefit economically from the token? So those are some of the themes that are being discussed. There's also a lot of talk about derivatives in DC. And like I said, I've had the ability, I used to run a couple of derivatives businesses back in the day in TradFi. I've been watching this space very closely. I testified in Congress a few weeks ago on it. And the whole question around derivatives is around the need for an intermediary in the derivative space. And as we all know, cryptocurrency, blockchain technology allows the elimination of intermediaries and thus resulting in more inclusive access to markets. And so the CFTC is really debating right now and looking into changing that market structure to remove those intermediaries. And as a guy who used to run one of those intermediaries, it's super, super difficult, almost impossible to offer cryptocurrency futures or derivatives because as an intermediary, particularly a bank intermediary, the current regulations that you have to follow around capital, et cetera, it's just incredibly difficult to offer scale. So you're left with a tiny sliver of capacity and you can only give it out to your top clients. And that's really not what we want. We want to have a robust derivatives market that's liquid, that people can hedge risk during periods of volatility. And that simply doesn't exist. And the point that I've been trying to consistently make is that by eliminating that intermediary, by leveraging the technology that we now have, we'll be able to develop deep liquid derivatives markets in the United States. All the regulators, folks in Congress are looking at that proposal. They're ripping it apart from a risk management perspective, focusing on operational risk, just capitalization of the system and default management. And I remain pretty hopeful and encouraged because the dialogue has been constructive and looking to solve problems, not just saying no for political sake or for no particular other reason. So all in all, great trip. The dialogue it keeps me encouraged because I think once we have 
legislation that's clear. It'll empower regulators to do what they need to do. And then we have consistent guardrails, a consistent sandbox where our innovators can build and grow and flourish, acknowledging where the boundaries are around regulation. So very exciting. And then last thing is once we have that regulation set, it'll also attract more institutions into the space. And so those are the two themes in the market we're watching closely. And we are excited about the future. Thanks. Thank you so much for that, Chris. And honestly, much of this feels like it could come out as positive overall for the ecosystem. Do you feel that this shift towards bipartisan involvement is a relatively new phenomenon, or has this been going on for quite some time now? I think in crypto, it's been generally bipartisan. And we've seen Democrats come on board recently because of the acknowledgement that it has the potential to facilitate a more inclusive marketplace. You don't see that too often in DC. Most issues become very polarized very quickly. And I hope it stays that way in this space because that's how laws get done. Great. Thank you so much for that, Chris. And now we're going to jump over to Evan with a general market update and then diving into some specifics around gaming. Evan, what have you been seeing over the past few weeks? Thanks, Kelsey. We've been continuing to be busy on both the venture and the liquid strategies. So starting with the market update, I think the name of the game or one of the larger stories is still the market is digesting the continued counterparty risk concerns related to some of the recent counterparty failures and higher credit risk. I think we specifically within our port codes, that's resulted in a bit of credit tightening, both voluntary and involuntary deleveraging. And we've been helping our founders think through to what extent their businesses were overtly levered as well as inadvertently levered and how to manage some of those interest payments as it relates to the runway that they may have. What we're actually seeing in the primary market, so thinking about venture private market deals, is founders are continuing to be increasingly more open to working with prospective investors creatively on the types of structures that better optimize for long-term alignment. What that really means is, whereas a previous founder may have just wanted to do a quick token round, had a price in mind, and had competing term sheets to catalyze around. I think now for investors like CoinFund who are still in the market and very much actively excited to find new ideas and themes to deploy for the next wave of secular growth, we're actually interacting with founders much more in a dialogue type fashion. Perhaps we are looking for the right mix of token and equity prices as well as other structures and elements to be creative about with respect to a deal are now all on the table. And I think in return, what that offers founders is the knowledge of partnering with investors like ourselves that are 100% aligned for the long term. I think one of the, I guess, silver linings in the cloud of the volatility that we've seen is some of the more, I would say, mercenary capital or shorter term investors are finding themselves having to manage some of those liquidity concerns themselves, perhaps on their balance sheets, et cetera. And that has been either taking them out of the market temporarily or permanently. And that actually results in somewhat less of a competitive dynamic and our ability to do diligence on some of the prospective investments actually lengthen because we now have more time to make sure that we understand all of the different moving pieces to ultimately underwrite a higher conviction investment case internally, which is ultimately what we are looking to do. The segue from that market color is... There are some themes that we at CoinFund have been engaging with more discreetly and deliberately with the time that we find ourselves having now. So one of them I'll talk about is zero-knowledge-based projects. I think that's actually a very active field of research for ourselves and 
what is cool is we're now starting to see some projects come to market with product that they've been building for a while, but now are excited to show more broadly in our fundraising in support of. A couple of names that we're speaking with or are paying attention to, we're not necessarily investors in any or all of them, but some that we're paying attention to include Matter Labs and what they've continued to do with ZK Sync as a platform for zero-knowledge-based scaling technology. There are also now hardware-based approaches or at least managed services for high-performance computing to run some of these zero-knowledge algorithms, the, the proofs themselves. I think that's an ongoing debate in the market. We're still working our way through making up our mind in terms of how much of the future zero-knowledge proof ecosystem will be generalized, whether that's more going to be on the software or the hardware side via ASICs or something that's more cloud-based on general compute. And lastly, we have been spending a bit more time understanding the Urbit ecosystem. For example, there's a project called Ukbar, which is a zero-knowledge roll-up among a couple of different things within the Urbit ecosystem. And the subset of that investment diligence has us considering whether or when a more Web3 native operating system may take place. So a lot of questions remain, but it's an area of active research and potential of investment for CoinFund, but obviously for other investors as well as these founders are looking for the capital partners that will help them take their projects and products to the next level. Yeah, thanks for that, Evan. And can you remind our listeners what a zero-knowledge project is? Yeah, so a zero-knowledge project is really any project that leverages the idea of zero-knowledge proofs, which is simple, simply a way of authenticating and proving that you know a secret without actually revealing that secret. So the two main implementations of zero-knowledge proofs are in scaling solutions, which we put into the bucket of zero-knowledge rollups mostly if they settle back to the Ethereum base layer. And we're also seeing zero-knowledge proofs being applied to privacy solutions. There's an ongoing debate between investors and founders sort of seeking the best product market fit, which of those two larger families are the most fruitful for realizing and creating value. That's an area that we're also exploring and researching, but those are the two main implementations of zero-knowledge proofs. I will admit that zero-knowledge proofs, even for folks that have a more technical research background like those on the investment team at CoinFund, it's still an area of, I would say, cutting edge research. So I personally have been trying to get smarter, reading up on some of the publications around the next generation of proving technology that may be more efficient. What's interesting to note is the innovation that is taking place is actually coming from both Web 2 and Web 3. So for example, Shell proofs, which are a concept that are being pioneered by folks at Edge and Node, the creator of the graph, obviously originates from a Web3 team. But then on my reading list for this weekend is the white paper for PipeZK, which is actually published by a Microsoft team that is researching ways to increase the efficiency of the zero-knowledge provers in a way to maximize the use of some of those hardware and software implementations of provers that I mentioned earlier. So highly technical, but potentially highly interesting if you believe the ability for this privacy technology to be baked into some of these other implementations, it is one of the many ways that Web3 technology offers efficiency and privacy and uncensorability in a way that legacy technologies do not. Thanks, Evan. And 
Evan also has a piece coming out this week that will be live on our blog at coinfund.io under the insights tab. And that is focused on gaming, which is also one of my favorite subject matters. And we've been discussing a lot this week, some four main themes that Evan has been observing. Could you quickly run through those, Evan, for us and talk a little bit about convergent gaming when we have the next few minutes? Yeah, absolutely, Kelsey. Thanks. And for those that I've had the pleasure of speaking with about gaming, people know that it's near and dear to my heart. And probably this piece is long overdue. And I definitely recommend people take a look and obviously offer feedback or responses, whether you agree or not. The summary of the four themes that I'm kicking off introducing gaming with include ideas of gap closing gameplay, the incumbent lethargy, and the innovator's dilemma that I think set this theme up well to be realized in Web3, also ideas of truly open economies, as well as the explosion of game and asset creation by the tools that are coming up. So to summarize each of the four more specifically, the gap closing gameplay idea is one where I believe, and we are now seeing actively that due to experienced game developers now becoming either disillusioned with the slow pace of corporate progress within the larger publishers and studios, or maybe incented by the ability to potentially make their own fortune by creating the next game that gets us to 5 million monthly active users and above. They're actually coming over into Web3. They're developing some in stealth, some in public, but most of the next generation of games that really close the gap in terms of gameplay, in terms of the quality of graphics, the viability of the different layers of the stack that provides a true live service, low latency, high performance experience that hasn't really been released yet. So it's exciting to see the gap closing in terms of gameplay and whether that is realized in public releases that are scalable and playable in the next year, two years, three years. We are less sensitive to the specific timing, but very excited about the theme of Web3 native games feeling really pretty much identical from a gameplay perspective while offering gameplay design choices that are incremental to the options that are available today. The second theme that I note in this piece is incumbent lethargy. And it's really the idea that for these large publishers and studios that are worth, call it 10, 20, $50 billion plus, they have no real incentive to challenge the monetization model that has worked for them and has supported their stock price, even though the quarterly profit-driven motivations have resulted in disappointment to fans for some of the recent titles that are overhyped relative to what's delivered due to simply needing to meet the December holiday deadlines for a lot of these publicly companies, uh, publicly traded companies. I think that pattern sets up a potential for pretty easy or as easy as it can get disruption by Web3 native game studios that are willing to take a chance on not only delivering more of what fans say they want, but experimenting with new monetization models, which is a segue into the third major trend of truly open economies that I noted. What that actually means is pretty simple at the end of the day. It is the idea that transitioning from exploitative loot box or other types of whale hunting monetization into something where all players are able to participate and the protocol or the game instead earns their revenues from taking a share of this secondary market and ancillary service-based revenue stream fee share. So I think while 
it's a horse that's beaten to death. I talk a lot about the monetization of a game like Diablo Immortal, which has really struck a nerve with a lot of players and even streamers that historically have been incented not to criticize these larger publishers, I think have realized that the winds are changing. And I think the winds are actually changing in a way that supports some of the newer positive sum monetization that we're seeing in Web3 games. And then lastly, I think the element of creation and creation enablement in terms of tools that we're seeing, whether on the analytics side or on the world building side are extremely interesting because similar to what we saw with how YouTube, as well as the advent of high definition cameras on phones combined with broadband internet that is sufficiently high quality enough to enable anybody to upload videos anywhere and how that resulted in not only the growth of YouTube, but other platforms that are even shorter from like TikTok. I actually see that the democratization tools of Web3 native game design are actually not only complementary to what exists today in Web2 with Unreal, Unity, and other engines themselves, but I see new avenues for creation enablement where lowering the barriers to entry for a creative person that may have a game mechanic idea or a visual idea to translate that into an asset that is immediately saleable and additive to an ecosystem that already lives and is hungry for more content. I think that's extremely powerful and it speaks to one of the core tenets of blockchain, which is about removing barriers, removing middle people, as well as really enabling content to find demand in a much more open way. And what that actually means is competition goes up for each individual creator, but they also get access to a market they wouldn't have before. And the ultimate beneficiaries are the players themselves that have this cornucopia of choice and quality that is no longer beholden to the gatekeeping that currently exists. I guess to summarize, there are a lot of kinks that need to be ironed out in terms of the implementation of products that espouse or uphold some of these themes that we've identified. But as a gamer of now 25 plus years, starting with the Nintendo 64, I'm really excited to see what game developers and designers in collaboration with, as opposed to in opposition to their player base are able to create in the coming years and months. And I'm personally excited to play some of these games that are under development, some of which we've invested in others that we haven't, but I'm still excited to play just because I think they offer really exciting alternatives and more engaging, again, less extractive ways to add value and take some of the value that you add back out of the ecosystem. That's never really been done before. Yeah, thanks, Evan. I think there's been some really exciting advancements in Web3 gaming, and Evan's piece will be out by the time you hear this on the CoinFund website. We just have a minute left. Wanted to cover another interesting development this week that I've been exploring personally are ways the community is organizing to provide healthcare. I've seen some articles around Unicorn DAO and others, so I'll be doing some research there and we'll follow up with any interesting trends. Thank you so much, Chris and Evan, for joining us this week. We'll definitely have you both on again soon. And don't forget to hop on our blog on the CoinFund website under Insights. And if, especially if you're based in Miami, go over to our community page where we have all the details for our monthly rabbit hole talks. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Chris. Mm-hmm.